Very good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to, just to be here to share God's word with you. If you have a Bible at hand, please turn to John's Gospel, chapter 15, and we'll read from verses 1 to 17. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 17. <clears throat> I trust that God will bless his word <clears throat> to our hearts. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. And we do trust that God will bless the reading of his word to your hearts. I always like to begin a, a text by sort of surrounding it with its context. So John chapter 15 verses 1 to 17 belongs to what many commentators call the upper room discourse. It starts in chapter 13 and continues through to the end of chapter 17, consisting of five chapters. Some, however, prefer to call this Jesus' farewell discourse, for later that same night, Jesus would be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and the next day crucified. 
As it labels as what the title's been given to it, 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 it speaks of all that took place in the large guest room in a house in, in Jerusalem where Jesus and the disciples met together to celebrate the Passover. Briefly, I just want to mention too that at the end of chapter 14, the very last verse, just prior to our reading, you may have noticed the words which Jesus spoke, Come now, let us leave. There's a certain amount of debate concerning this verse as to how it should be understood. Because of it, some argue that chapters 15 and following that which is recorded has been spoken en route to Gethsemane rather than in the upper room. However, a little further on in John's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 1, we read a second time about Jesus leaving. So the natural reading of 14.31 is that Jesus says, Come now, let us leave. And then he continues on to share that which is in chapters 15 to 17 before actually leaving. From John's account, we can see that there, from the very outside, that their time together in the upper room wasn't going to be an easy one. John tells us about the awkward beginning that of course they'd been out, out walking the dusty roads throughout the day and it was customary for their feet to be washed. But who was going to do the servant's job in washing the feet? None of the disciples seemed willing to do it, probably because they were concerned that it might send out the wrong signal, that they were perhaps not just as important as the rest of the disciples. Who was the greatest amongst them? was never far from the surface. Luke tells us that it was even raised during the Passover meal, causing a dispute among them. Hence their reluctance to do the lowest of servant jobs. They hadn't yet grasped that greatness in the kingdom of God is measured by the yardstick of service. Jesus taught that our attitude should be like his. In Matthew 20, verse 27, Jesus said, Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life at a ransom for many. As we know in complete shock and horror, Peter, with the others, watched Jesus get up, take off his outer clothing, uh, wrap a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. But Peter, of course, was having none of it and says to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. And here is Jesus' reply. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus moves to a whole new realm of reality. He's talking about salvation. Unless I wash you, cleanse you from your sins, you have no part with me. At the end of their conversation, Jesus says to Peter, you're clean, though not every one of you, referring to Judas. Judas had his feet washed just like the rest of the disciples, yet he still had no part with Jesus. Yes, he had the physical dirt removed, but not the dirt of his sins which of course is everyone's greatest need. 
Our passage itself then, um, chapter 15, verses 1 to 17, contains what is called a metaphor. Jesus here makes a comparison between two different things in order to convey truth. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And again in verse 5, I am the vine. That is, Jesus is the one who provides nourishment. He is the one who is the source of it. He, he sustains, gives energy and life, which flows from him into the branches attached to him. I am the true vine is actually, actually one of seven of I am sayings or statements found in John's gospel concerning Jesus. And on each occasion, it points to the deity of Jesus. His deity is so significant that it's constantly brought up to our attention by John. The first one of them is found in John chapter 6, verse 35, where Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Jesus also said, I am the light of the world, John 8. Jesus said, I am the door, John 10. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, John 10. Jesus said, I am the resurrection, John 11. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, John 14. And Jesus said, I am the true vine, John 15. This, as you may have noticed, is not what we find in Matthew 16, which is Peter's great confession, where Jesus asked Simon Peter, who do you say I am? Peter replies, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But in the I am sayings, Jesus is proclaiming himself to be God. For some, this was far too much to accept. The Pharisees once challenged Jesus in this very point about being his own witness. They said that it made his testimony invalid. Jesus replied, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. And then he offered himself and his father who sent him as the two witnesses required by the law. As Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? I wonder what your response would be to that same question. It's crucial to give the right answer and believe it because your salvation depends upon it. If you were to say, Jesus, I believe he was a, a good moral teacher. Actually, not merely a good teacher, but a great prophet from God. And if you were to even to say, I believe he is God's firstborn, created by God before the world was made. That's how exalted and significant Jesus is to me. Then that would put you on a path to a lost eternity. John 18 verse, sorry, John 8 verse 24, Jesus says these words, If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. You see, you, can't, you have to fully believe what Jesus says and honour him as such. You can't hold that 
Jesus is some kind of imposter or even blasphemer and at the same time receive God's salvation. Jesus clearly speaks about his deity. And of course, it never went down well with the Jewish religious authorities. We see this in John 8, where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. And we might ask ourselves, well, why such an outrage? Because they understood what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, I am the great eternal God who exists not merely during Abraham's time, but before Abraham was even born. The name I am, of course, takes us back to Exodus chapter 3, where God spoke to Moses from the burning bush and said, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses asked, what if the Israelites were to ask me, what is your name? What, what shall I say to them? And God replies, tell them, I am has sent you. Jesus is saying, it was me who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush in the far side of the desert. It was me who spoke and said, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. That remote place had his ground made holy simply because of who came to visit. Holy, 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 Isaiah writes, is the Lord Almighty. So Jesus proclaims through these statements that he is God, and he looks to see our response. When Jesus said, I am the true vine, his Jewish disciples would have not have thought of this as a bizarre concept, nor difficult to understand since they were brought up in Judaism and lived in a Jewish culture. The vine was nothing strange to them. Firstly, it was part of their daily lives. Vines were in abundance in the land because they were heavily relied upon to, to provide something to drink, as clean water was not always, obviously always um, readily available. But beyond that, every Jew for centuries knew that in the word of God, Israel was often identified as a vine. In the book of Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 7 says, the, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. In Psalm 80 and verse 8 we read, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it and, and it took root and filled the land. Blessing was to flow from God through the vine Israel. They were meant to be a channel of blessing. And whoever was attached to Israel was going to be blessed. However, there was a problem with this vine. Even though it was well looked after and attended by God, it didn't produce good fruit. But it was defective. It should have produced the fruits of righteousness and justice but instead it produced bad fruit, the fruit of violence and distress. In Isaiah chapter five, verse four, God says, when I looked for grapes, why did it yield only bad? And verse seven, he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. 
In Ezekiel chapter 15, Israel is declared to be a useless vine. And in chapter 16, Jerusalem is said to be unfaithful. So Israel failed to be a channel through which God would flow. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, the true vine, he is contrasting himself with Israel, drawing attention to the fact that Israel was a false and defective vine while he was the true vine. When Jesus said, I am the true vine to his Jewish disciples, it, it was significant stuff to them because they, they could have easily, of course, thought that because they lived in the land of Israel and because they were Jews that they were connected to God and many in the land did believe that because they were God's chosen people. Even if they had all the same background as the Apostle Paul, circumcised on the eighth day, belonging to the people of Israel and of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, Jesus was saying to them that none of these things can connect you to God. I am the true vine. The only vine that can bring you into a relationship with God is me. And friends, it's the same for us. Some may say, I'm connected to God. I must be connected to God because I belong to a Christian nation. Jesus says it's a false vine. Only he alone can connect us to God. Sometimes some might think, well, I belong to a Christian denomination. I belong to the Church of Ireland, or I'm a Baptist, I'm a Presbyterian, or I'm a Catholic, or even I belong to an evangelical church. I've been baptized and I take communion once again. It's only through knowing Jesus can we be brought into God's family. While Jesus is the true vine, we see that his father is the gardener, and there are two things mentioned that he does. He cuts off every branch that is attached to the vine that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear, bear, bear fruit he prunes, so that it will even bear more fruit. And so we discover here that there are two types of branches attached to Jesus, those that are fruitless and those that bear fruit. The fruitless branches which were cut off in verse 6, we read that they're thrown away and they wither. And such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. While in verse 8, the branches that bear much fruit are shown to be his disciples, that is, his true disciples, not merely being attached, but bearing much fruit. So Jesus is the vine, God the Father is the gardener, and his disciples are the branches, and there are two types of branches correspondingly with two kinds of endings. The context of our passage is significant. The disciples, doubtless, are still processing, working through a lot of stuff that's just been said over the past few, uh, previous few hours during the Passover meal. And one of the bombshells concerned Judas, who was no longer with them. When Jesus said that one of them was going to betray me, John writes that they stared at each other at a loss to know which of them he meant. This was a huge thing for them to take in 
and process. Jesus in verse 3 says to the the remaining 11 disciples, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. These disciples were already cleansed and this was brought about by the word. What word, we might ask? By the word that Jesus spoke to them over the previous uh, three years when when, when they walked with him. These disciples, the now 11, um, responded to the word of God. They came under its authority that the master spoke. They accepted the message and the messenger who brought it. And by it they were cleansed. These are the branches which are pruned and bear much fruit. The branches that are fruitless, which are cut off, burnt, represents those like Judas, whom Jesus said at the very start of the night was not clean, even though he had washed his feet. He was attached. He had close contact with Jesus, even being part of the inner circle. But rather than accepting the Lord's word in his heart, he rejects it. Rejecting Jesus who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except me. As we have seen through the fruitless branches has dreadful consequences. They are cut off, they wither, picked up and are burned. It's important to emphasize that this passage is um, not, not about genuine believers somehow losing their salvation. Both branches indeed are said to be in him, that is in me, in Jesus, in verse 2. But the distinguishing characteristic is not attachment, but whether they bear fruit or not. Genuine believers cannot help but bear fruit as Jesus, as they are connected to him, as he is the source of life. Jesus plainly taught in John chapter 10, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. The fruit that genuine believers will produce, or of course we know them well from Galatians, are love, joy, and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. John the Baptist once said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That is not only to confess our sins, but to have that willingness, that desire to turn away from them. In John 12 verses 46, we get a a glimpse, a little insight into the life of Judas. It says that he was a thief and as the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. His betrayal of Jesus, we could say, goes further back than the night he identified Jesus with a kiss. He knew it was wrong to steal, yet it seemed not to have troubled him. Repentance, I guess, was rarely, if ever, practiced by Judas. A good picture of repentance is seen in the story of Zacchaeus, who, after encountering Jesus, says, Look, Lord, here and now, 
I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Judas, in his deceitfulness over a prolonged period of time, never took the opportunity to repent. The door of his heart was wide open for Satan to enter in through. Satan, I assume, didn't have to use much persuasion to convince Judas that betrayal for 30 pieces of silver was well worth it. What can we learn from this? We must not knowingly and willingly play around with sin and profess to follow Jesus. These stories are given not just to inform us about history, but to warn us in order that we will not follow that same pattern and ultimately end in the same ending that Judas had, where John says that he went out into the night, that is, into the darkness of a lost eternity. As we draw near to the end of our time together, I want to finish with a few thoughts on verse 4, which says, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. These words are obviously speaking about intimacy with God. Knowing Jesus can't ever be reduced to merely seeing it as a ticket to heaven. Psalm 42 verses 1 and 2 says, As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for you, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? The psalmist reveals to us something of the longings that are within the inner man. He obviously is longing for a deeper relationship with God. Concerning this psalm, Charles Spurgeon wrote that David was longing for the renewal of the divine presence, struggling with doubts and fears, but yet holding his ground by faith in the living God. David, he says, was heartsick. Ease he did not seek, honour he did not covet, but the enjoyment of communion with God was his urgent need for his soul. He viewed it not merely as the sweetest luxuries, but as an absolute necessity, like water to a stag. And we trust that God will bless his, his word to us. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.